We're in a series that we've entitled Fit Church, as you saw in the video, uh, reminding us of what it means to be a healthy church and really asking the question this morning of self-reflection, are we a healthy church? And we've examined uh, things like our preaching, our theology, our understanding of the gospel, um, the idea of conversion, how are uh, sinners made right uh, in the eyes of God, what does that new birth experience look like? And we come to uh, the halfway point where we're examining the idea of evangelism, talking about what it means to take that good news of Jesus Christ to a lost world so they might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Acts chapter 3 this morning. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to read verses 11 through 21. And uh, we've got a lot to log through. I'm hoping to get you there by dinner time for the barn bash. And uh, so uh, pray for uh, the expediency in this message as we've got a lot to go through. But Acts chapter 3 verses 11 through 21 says the following. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And it's his name, by faith in his name, that has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith is through Jesus And that has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you've acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Father God, we come together and we come in a spirit of dependency. We have sung praises and sung with our voices our need for you. That amidst a, an ocean, we find ourselves failing and falling into the waters with our eyes not on you. We recognize that as Peter did in those waters, that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be dependent to hear your word again and to put our attention on you and not on ourselves. We've shown our dependence in our prayers, knowing we can alone not fix the emotional and physical and spiritual duress that impacts the lives of those so close to us in this place. We know you alone are the great physician. We know alone you are the one who's the answer to the things that that cause us such trouble. And so we go to you and offer our prayers and petitions to you because we are dependent on you. Lord, we show our dependence by by taking what you've given to us, the material 
uh, blessings that you've shown us and we give back to you. Lord, I pray that you would bless the tithes and offerings that have been given today in faith. Lord, some may be large gifts, some may be very small, and Lord, we know that the amount is not the issue, but the heart behind it is. We know you are blessed when we are cheerful in our giving, and we show our dependence that it is you whom we receive all good things, and so we give back to you in that. Now, Lord, in dependence, we turn to your word because we are lost without it. And so, Lord, turn our attention to it. Open our ears to hear it. Give us hearts that are ready to receive it so that we may know not only the gospel that you've preached to us, but that you've given us a commission and a command to go and preach it to all mankind. So, Lord, give us the tools that we need to move forward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I know when you talk on the subject of evangelism, many of you will say, oh boy, I'm going to feel convicted, and I hope you do today. Uh, Oh boy, I'm not sure I know how to do this, and uh, so I'll listen and maybe get a couple, a few tips to help me in it. Or, oh boy, um, I'm not going to do this, and I don't need to listen because I'm not gifted, I'm not an extrovert. And so I recognize that evangelism is a tall task to preach about, and yet it is one that is needed within the church. Understand it this way. Without evangelism, if we are not reaching the loss with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church will become smaller and smaller and become non-existent. If we are not a part of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, we will be the last generation that uh, uh, will have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And yet, while I say that, I recognize that God says it is through His church that He will see this happen and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we have two things warring against us, if you will. One is that God says that we are going to do this work, and two, whether we're going to do it or not, whether we're going to be a part of that blessing or not. And so I want to make uh, the idea of evangelism brought down to the simplest of terms, and that's difficult to do because evangelism involves and incorporates a lot of things in our lives, in our Christian walk, uh, that are uh, so very uh, key to us sharing that good news with Christ. One of the smartest and wisest men that I've ever met or known is my own father. Now that may seem odd because my father has very little education. If you were to ask him his educational system, while he does carry a high school diploma, coming to the United States from Iraq at the age of 16, his high school experience and education uh, was far from being very similar to any other American student. My dad has the equivalent of an eighth grade education, and as a result of that, uh, he doesn't have a lot of diplomas. He doesn't have a lot of of, uh, grades that will show that he is a smarter, wise man. But my dad has proven with little education that he's a man with above-average proficiency. He's shown me this as I've watched him be a grocery store owner, a caterer, an employer, a father, a husband, and now for the last 15 or 16 years as a pastor. He has an uncanny ability to deal with the most complex issues and bring it down to the smallest of terms. His secret for success, number one, would be the grace of Almighty God. He would always tell me that. But he would also tell me a millions of times growing up this phrase that he had longed uh, to pursue, and that is, keep it simple, stupid. You see, that term, while crass as it may be, and kids, I don't give you permission to say that, that term is used to realize that the most complex of decisions and issues can be brought down to the simplest of terms. 
that not everything is as complex as it seems. Now, my dad was by no means the first to come up with this idea of keeping things simple. Uh, The great NCAA coach from California, uh, John Wooden, uh, would begin the year by reminding the, the students or the athletes that were under his care, the championship teams that he had, of the new offensive strategy that he would in, in, uh, introduce to the uh, team. How would he begin that? He wouldn't put them on the court. He wouldn't tell the players what schemes they were going to run. His first practice every year was how to put socks on the right way. The whole first practice, we're going to learn how a basketball player puts on their socks. Another great uh, coach of great renown who, will, uh, who coached for many years of a nameless team up north named Vince Lombardi, uh, one day after a demoralizing loss, I think it was to the Chicago Bears, I'm not sure of that, but I hope so, um, brought his team together and said, we got to get back to the basics. We're not playing offense right. We're not playing defense right. Our special teams is terrible. We need to get back to what it is to play football. And he took a football into his hands and he says, I want to introduce you to somebody. This is a football. And for the rest of his speech, he went step by step, moving from the most simplest of terms out to the whole offensive and defensive schemes of a victorious team. When it comes to evangelism, we can get ourselves so worked up with all the details and all of that that we can forget this is evangelism. Evangelism in its simplest of terms is a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so it's us sinners telling other sinners where to find Jesus and the impact that Jesus can have in our lives. But it is also complex. And to keep it in the simplest of terms, as I said, can be a difficult proposition. So what I want to do is this morning, as quickly as I can, and there's a lot that we have to go through in this one sermon on evangelism, is to introduce with you five things that we need to be aware of with regards to our engagement when it comes to evangelism, because this is the lifeblood of the church. We have to be evangelists. We cannot sit idly by and wait for someone else to do it. You and I are called, wherever we are at, wherever God has placed us, to be his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. And that may be for you across the street or next door, or it may be for some as they've traveled in short-term missions, and I know we even have some in long-term capacity sitting in our presence today who have gone to the far-flung places of the world sharing that good news of Jesus Christ with others. We've got to do it. So how do we do it? Let's notice the first thing this morning. Number one, we have to understand and we have to recognize the things that sabotage this evangelism. What is keeping us from sharing the greatest message ever told from the world? You would think that if we had a cure for cancer or a cure for Ebola, maybe a more current understanding, that we would be telling anyone and everyone who would listen, whether they want to listen or not, what the antidote is. Well, we have that as followers of Jesus Christ. We have the antidote to the world's greatest disease, one that does not only kill the body, but destroys the soul, sin, and that answer is Jesus Christ. The question is, why in the world are we not telling people about it? I've got nine reasons, I believe, why we don't do it. As, as a pastor now for over 10 years, as a Christian for the majority of my life, I think I'm an expert as to why we don't evangelize because I know why at times I don't evangelize. So let's address each and every one of them and let's ask the question this morning, Lord, convict us 
of any of these things that are true in my life. Number one, we live cloistered lives. We live cloistered lives. That word cloistered is not a word we use very often. And many times when we think of cloistered, we think of monks and, and nuns who have cloistered themselves into an abbey or an abbot or, or some sort of monastery in some far-off place to be uh, totally secluded from the world and its entrapments to just focus in on, on God. And this is the great sin in our day of evangelicalism. We have ceased at times to engage culture. Now let me explain. What I mean by that is while we live in the world, uh, we do not engage the world around us. Now, yes, right away I know some will say as they're sitting in the pew, as they did in the first service, uh, the reason why I don't, Tim, is I don't want to be stained or tarnished. I don't want my kids to have that. We want to stay above the fray. I get it. And that's a biblical pursuit. We are not to allow ourselves to be corrupted by this world. And yes, the world is a terrible place. And yes, people do hate Jesus. But let me remind you this morning that the Bible never endorses or advocates for us to live in sanitized Christian bubbles absent from the world. Now many of you will say right away, I am in the world. I work there. I live there. But I will tell you, that I think we are far more cloistered than we know. Amanda and I, a couple of years ago, were convicted by this within our own community. And we asked some very difficult questions. Number one, how active am I in my neighbor's lives? Are my neighbors people that I just wave to? I don't even know their name. I don't know where they work. I don't know what's going on in their life. Or do we have a, a readily involved place in the life of our neighbors? Are they people that can can look to us as being trustworthy? Can they see us as, as positive elements within their lives? Do your neighbors say to you, I hope they do, that it is good to have the so-and-sos living next door to us? Number two question that we asked, how many believers do we consider as friends? While I understand that it is a sin for light to be unequally yoked with darkness, we must remember that Jesus Christ was called a friend of sinners. That he partied with tax collectors and prostitutes. And if we're going to imitate the person of Jesus Christ and imitate his ministry, then we cannot simply have Christians as our only friends. The next question we ask is, how many spiritual conversations have we had with unsaved people around us? Well, right away we'll say, well, people don't want to have spiritual conversations, that people are too busy living their own lives, that they're hostile to Jesus. Here's the thing that I've learned. As I have shared the good news of Jesus Christ, and maybe I am in uh, godly DeKalb County, so maybe I'm just in the right place at the right time, but here's what I know. Every time I've shared the good news of Jesus Christ with someone, I have always been treated with respect and honor, Okay? Now, maybe I'm not hanging with the barbarians you're hanging with, okay? Maybe they really are a lot worse when you cross Route 47. I've had those questions before in my mind. But here's what I've come to know. While I hear that great persecution is going on in our nation, I haven't seen it. Not in the way that the New Testament talks about it. 
So if we're going to use persecution as a way to stop us from evangelizing Jesus Christ, let us be reminded that it didn't stop the New Testament church when they were being beaten, when they were being jailed and imprisoned, and when they were being harassed and their, their uh, uh, government wasn't standing for them and their property was being taken away. And even in those moments, the New Testament church evangelized through and through. So we've got some opportunities before us. And from my vantage point, far too many of us, including myself in this, are failing the test. And in a church this size, with the ministry and programs that we have, it is sure easy to make this our only community that we need. It is time, as Rebecca Pippert said in her book, that Christians get out of the salt shaker and get into the world. Write that title down. There'd be a great book for some of us to read, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World by Rebecca Pippert. Some of us need to think, rethink our approach to life and ask some real difficult questions about the things that we have done to create a force field around ourselves that hinder us from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're not probably biblical. Number two, they'll not all be this long. Number two, we are full of conceit. We are full of conceit. Why don't we evangelize? Because we look at the world and we see the world in their sin and quite frankly, we are grossed out by them. We are appalled at what they do. We see their brazenness and we say, what filth, what dirt, what a waste. Let me remind you that the Apostle Paul heard this at the church of Corinth and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reminds the people in the church the same reminder I give us today. That after listing all kinds of heinous sins that are ever present within the world around us, Paul says, such were you before you came to Jesus Christ. He reminds us that we were just like them. Objects of God's wrath, filled with debauchery and all kinds of sin. And if you've been saved, if you've been saved so long that you forget who you were before Christ, or if you have neglected a biblical understanding of conversion that you forgot you were a filthy, rotten, dirty sinner before Christ demonstrated his love for you, then you have neglected the chief teachings of Scripture. You and I must display humility and love to even the most vilest of sinners. Let me remind you what Jesus did. When Jesus, the perfected Son of God, saw the vilest of sinners, prostitutes and tax collectors, people given to all sorts of debauchery, he did not come with words or feelings or thoughts of pride, but of compassion. He saw the crowd and had compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd. That's our view if we're going to be evangelists. Number three, we live corrupted lives. Some of us won't evangelize because we're too busy living like the world. Why in the world would they listen to our gospel when all they see is the world's gospel in our lives? Some of us, if we had the idea and we were impacted by the uh, uh, gospel of Jesus Christ to go and share the good news tomorrow, we would need to make sure that in our possession are dozens of neck braces because of the whiplash that people would have as a result of the change that they've seen in us. Because we were too busy last week 
cursing with them and carousing with them and, and doing the things that they do, that they would never think that we would be the one that would bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another reason why we are sabotaged in our evangelism is we cripple the message with our garbage. That's Tim's translation. We sell the gospel like we do our dietary ideas, our quick get quick, get rich quick schemes, our conspiracy theories about what we think of our government and, and other extra, extraterrestrial type things. And we do so. Where do I see this? I see this on Christians' Facebook pages all the time. The garbage that we peddle, and then we put something nice about Jesus on there. And they already know we're whack jobs already. And then we say, well, the same thing that I'm talking about Jesus is the same garbage I'm selling you about this pill or this thing or, or, or this thing about our government or, or all of that. Man, we got to be careful that we don't sell the gospel like we sell everything else because we will cripple the message every time. Next one is we live in chaos. We live in chaos. One of the ways that a person will determine the veracity of any teaching is to look at the ones who are the adherents of it. And so what a person will do, listen to me, they will not just listen to the gospel that you preach. That's part of the gospel. But I will tell you, I can assure you, that they are going to look at the life you live. Does it add up to what this person is proclaiming? So you say that Jesus is the joy of your salvation. Are you joyful? Or are you some stick in the mud who is woe is me, the Eeyore of the workplace? Is Jesus the one who brings clarity to all things in life and godliness? Well, how's your marriage? Do they see your marriage as a biblical model of marriage? How about how you're raising your kids? How about how you're using your money? Do they see you in financial bondage like the rest of the world is, filled with materialism? Now, I am not advocating that we live lives of fake perfection. Nor do I say that we should not show ourselves to be broken and humble. But let us be reminded what the Apostle Peter says in First Peter chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 2, that we should live such good lives among the pagans. The idea there is not just good in the sense of wholesome, but exemplary lives. That, oh, they accuse us of doing wrong. They glorify the, uh, our God on the day that he visits. And so we need to make sure that if we're going to proclaim the gospel, not that we have to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but if we want people to see to see the change of Jesus that he can make in their life, they should be able to see the change that Jesus has made in our own. Next, we don't think it's worth the cost. We don't think it's worth the cost. Teenagers, listen to me. The devil tells you that it's not worth not sitting at the popular kid's table to share the gospel. Popular kid's table is far more important. You're not going to be as liked in the office place because you share the gospel. There's a real reality to that. But what's the alternative? The alternative is people go to hell without a Savior. The, world, the, 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 the truth is, is that people will spend eternity in hell. Will be lost forever. 
And so we have to ask the question this morning, what is worth more than me sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? And I will tell you, every time you evangelize, that question will come up. Because the devil is going to do the same thing that he did to the Apostle Peter when, Jesus, when he was asked about Jesus on the night of Jesus' arrest. Do you know him? Are you one of his followers? And Peter said in his mind, it isn't worth the pushback. It isn't worth the tongue lashing. It isn't worth the persecution. And so when the devil reminds you of that, you remind the devil that it's totally worth it because what Jesus did for the sake of evangelism was go to the cross. And Jesus asks of us, demands of us, that we sacrifice. While we may not have to, maybe at some point we may be put on a cross. We may have to stand and give our allegiance to Christ at the point of sword or or the muzzle of a gun. Right now, popularity and being thought of well does not match the cost of seeing people come to know their Savior. Next is a long first point. Next, we think it is the job of the evangelistic crusaders. So some of you are sitting there going, man, that's a great message for so-and-so to hear. They're an extrovert. And extroverts are, man, they've got that special gift to be able to stand in front of everybody and tell them about Jesus. I'm an introvert. I, I don't have that ability, so this message isn't for me. But let me remind you that Jesus tells all people that they will be his witnesses. And that the very basis of the gospel is that the understanding that you and I have been given the greatest gift ever, and we have been given the opportunity to share that with others, we do not understand the gospel if we don't understand our part in sharing it. Now, I will say that I have seen with my own eyes an average individual take the gospel and transform the world that they live in. Many of you know I have a brother that was killed in a car accident, but many don't know the story of my brother before he was killed in a car accident. My brother was an average teenage kid who fell into the world's clutches. He became a drinker. He loved to party. I'm sure that he was fast and loose with women. All of that was going on in my brother's life until my brother was a part of a Bible study, one Bible study at this church where my brother took the Word of God at face value. And my brother said to the man, our youth pastor, who was teaching that class, I want to make a difference. I no longer want to live for myself. I want to live for Christ. I'm going to do whatever I can to make that happen. He was a junior, a 15, 16-year-old junior. Nothing great about this kid, living in a public school, going to school, going uh, to live life with unbelievers. And what he did was almost nearly miraculous, and I got to see it firsthand. I remember my brother came home and he was in speech class and he said to my parents, I think I'm going to make a difference through my speeches. What do you mean, son? My dad would say. I'm going to preach Christ in every one of the speeches that I'm given. I will find a way to present the gospel every time that I give a speech. He had seven speeches that semester to give. I want you to know that classes stopped their classes to go and listen to Chris give a speech. Pagan people in their classrooms would bring their classes. Chris is giving a speech. A junior is giving a speech. That's unheard of, right? You get serious about Jesus, you'll be surprised what he'll do. 
So then what happens? Well, Dad, I'm going to go and I'm going to I'm going to uh, start praying at, at lunch and 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 I'm going to start uh, reading my Bible during lunch. Well, son, they're going to come at you. I know, Dad, but I'm going to do it. He would say, and he would go and he would read his scriptures, and then some others would come. Would you pray for me? Could you have a scripture that you could share with me? It wasn't good enough. The teacher was saying, you're taking too much time at lunch. You've got to do it some other time. So he said, I'll get up earlier in the morning on Wednesdays. I'll go to church, or go to, church, go to school, and uh, I'll start a Bible study. He was by himself the first three weeks, ready to give up hope. And then two kids came. And then four. And then eight. Sixteen. Thirty-two. Before you know it, he's got four dozen kids coming to a Bible study on Wednesday, which is a miracle in and of itself, teenagers getting to school early. Okay, all of this begins to happen. He says, I'm the only dad. I'm the only, unbeliever, or only believer in my school. They're all unbelievers. By the time he was done, I kid you not, he had led more than three dozen kids to salvation. All, many of them walking with the Lord to this day. Then he dies. His senior year, first couple weeks of his senior year. And God would take the testimony of an average 15, 16-year-old kid and change the school. You don't think you have an opportunity to change your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you don't know how great your God is. I am blown away at the things that God has used me to do. You say, well, Tim, we, we, we live in a, in a different world. We live in a different age. I've said this story before. I got a call. Remember, my people don't know me as much as the pastor, as the pork chop cooker in Hinkley. And I got a phone call at 8 o'clock in the morning. Tim, you need to come to our school. We had a kid die, uh, very well known, and uh, we don't know what to tell the kids. Will you come and just talk to our kids? Well, I'm going to share the gospel. We don't care. Talk to our kids. 300 students at Hinkley Big Rock listen to the pork chop cooker talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You pray that way, God will give you opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In my time, in my community, I've had no less than three public opportunities in the school to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with no one saying a peep about it. And if we pray like that and believe that, God will make a Billy Graham out of all of you. But we don't pray that way. We don't think that way. We don't say, God, I'm willing to make a difference. Hell or high water, I'm going to do this, Lord, for you and for your glory. And let me remind you, us in the Badal family, we're a bunch of morons. Okay? So if you think that we've got something good going on, we've got a great God, and God uses donkeys all the time to proclaim his message. Okay? So I don't want you to say, oh, man, the Badals, they're super saints and all that. No, we're, we're a bunch, we're a wreck. Okay? But God will do it. Moving on, I digress. We want instant conversions. we got to forget that this is about us sealing the deal. And what we need to do is we need to be patient in planting and, and, and cultivating. And when God gives opportunities to reap the benefits of that. we got to be farmers with regards to our evangelism. Our farmers are out there reaping right now. These are the good days for the farmers, right? They're looking to that crop. They're excited about it. That's where all the fun is. But let us not forget, it was six months ago that they were in an empty field planting little seeds into the ground, hoping and praying that those seeds were going to come to fruition. And far too many of us are so worried about the harvest. We are, are, all we can think of as evangelism is combining. I'm telling you, it involves the planting and the tilling and the preparing of the ground. Paul says it this way. I, I planted the seed. Apollos watered the seed, but it's God who makes it grow. 
And so right now, some of you are saying, well, he's not accepting Jesus. He's not following Jesus, or she's not accepting him as, his, as her Savior. That's okay. Be faithful in cultivating that engagement. And let God be the one who makes it grow. Finally, we're not clear on the gospel. I hope you see that in our teaching in the last couple of weeks that evangelism cannot happen without a biblical understanding, first of all, as to what the gospel is and how conversion takes place. The gospel is not some Jesus genie in the bottle garbage. It is not Jesus as the self-help Dr. Phil with a better haircut. It is not a Hallmark movie or a Hallmark card with some pithy little statements of positive thinking. The gospel of Jesus Christ is we have a holy God who we have sinned against and God in his great love for us sent his son Jesus so that he might die and redeem us from our sins. So that means we need to be praying about it. We need to be stepping out of our comfort zone and start doing the work that God has. Well, how do we do it? Point number two, very short point. How do you do it? There isn't one style or one way that we teach or, or share in evangelism. In your bulletins, you've got a sheet of paper that's going to save me a lot of time under our second point. Our second point is there are different styles to evangelism. And as we look at the different styles of evangelism, notice there are no less than six, and I'm sure there's more, but I only had room on two pages for six, okay? And these six are clearly seen in the Scripture, so you have the direct style. That was my brother's style. Get up and start talking, and people will start listening, okay? There's the intellectual style. Uh, that was uh, the style of, of uh, one of my favorite speakers, Ravi Zacharias. I mean, just, he's going to go to Harvard, and he's going he's to debate, and he's going to talk with the smart thinkers of his day, and they're going to talk through it. That's what the Apostle Paul did. That was his style of evangelism. There's the testimonial style. This one's good for a lot of you who don't feel all that comfortable uh, with regards to the facts of Christianity, per se, where you can be blind Bartimaeus who says, hey, I don't know how it happened. I don't know the theological jargon behind it, but I met Jesus and I was once blind, but now I see, and it's because of Jesus. Any of us can do that. If we've experienced Jesus, we can share the testimony of that. There's the interpersonal style. That is just the lifestyle evangelism, interacting with people on mission. Jesus dined with prostitutes and tax collectors. He didn't do that so that he could become a tax collector or a prostitute. He did that to seek and to save that which was lost, and he did so through relationships. There's an invitational style, number five. Invitational style is what some of you have done today in inviting someone to come and be a part of the barn bash. Come and see that Christians aren't lunatics. Come and see that Christians can have a good time. Come and see the community and love that we show one another because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're going to see it. Come and be a part of it. There's the serving style. The serving style is that which Dorcas lived out in Acts chapter 9. By the way, pregnant ladies, we don't have any Dorcases around. We need a Dorcas here. So work on that as a baby name, okay? So you got Dorcas. She just served people. And we have that opportunity. we got the Christmas boxes coming up. Samaritan's Purse puts together. And you say, what good is that? The good of that is that we give shoes and we give uh, items to, to people that are, are less fortunate. And we do so praying that the love of Christ would be seen. There's a lot of ways to evangelize. But notice the most important thing is the last part that I have on there. So what's your style? Whatever it is, put it into practice today. And so some of us say, well, I'm not an evangelist. Baloney, you're not an evangelist. 
You're an evangelist. You're just a different kind of evangelist. And so take the giftings, take the personality God's given you, and start using them for the glory of God. Let's move to point three. Point three, as we examine that, now that we know we have a part in it, let us never forget something very important is the theological side of it, and that's the sovereignty of God in evangelism. We need to recognize this morning that God is sovereign over our evangelism. And as we learned last week, conversion is a total work of God. God's the one who does the work. That's why we are saved not by the works of, God, works of righteousness, but the grace of God. And so we need to be praying for our unbelievers. All of us believe in the sovereignty of God when we say, Lord, open open their hearts, open their eyes. Lord, give them uh, the ability to see their sin, work in their lives, convict their spirit. We pray those things. We're praying the sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty of God is an important thing with regards to our evangelism. Number one, it gives us great hope. The great hope is that the vilest, most opposed individual to the gospel is reachable because God is God. So that guy or that lady in your life, whether at work or in the neighborhood, who hates God is still reachable. What this means is we don't pick off the weak links, if you will. Do you understand that? We go after the hardcore ones. God's able to change them. Do you know that was God's style? But notice who God saved. He saved all kinds of, of, of guys that seemingly, if you were going to start a religious organization, those aren't the guys you're going to start with, right? Tax collectors and, and, and fishermen and all that. God says, I'm going to show you what I can do with a bunch of worthless people. I'm going to save them, and I'm going to change them. He does that in Acts chapter 9. The worst one that he, can, he could possibly go after is Saul of Tarsus, and Saul really put up a fight. It took a nanosecond to change him, Right? When you believe God is sovereign, you are not going to be afraid to share the good news of Jesus Christ with even the most hardened sinner because God can change anyone. He changed you, didn't he? Number two, the sovereignty of God gives us peace that when people turn away, they are not turning away from us. We don't have to make this a personal thing. They are opposing the messenger, not opposing the messenger, but the message of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So we don't have to be offended. We don't have to take it to heart. We recognize what the scriptures recognize, and that is people are blind, dead, and held captive by the evil one, and they are rejecting Christ. And as God opens their eyes to it, until then, they will reject him all the time. Finally, the sovereignty of God gives us peace that when salvation, that our, that salvation of others is not dependent on our eloquence of speech or the flash of our presentation. It is a work of God that no one can boast. So, some of you are saying, well, if I only learn how to do evangelism, and if I get it down, if I get it into a, a fine little, little thing, then I can go share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says it has nothing to do with that, and it all has to do with the work of God. For we did not come with you with eloquence of speech. I blew that in the first service, which was a perfect illustration. Okay, couldn't even say the word eloquence. We don't have to be Mr. and Mrs. Know-it-all. We just need to show the power of God working in our lives and the power of Scripture in the lives uh, of those around us. Now, 
if God is completely sovereign in our salvation, then, then right away you'll say, well, then I don't have to do anything. Someone came up to me at the end of the first service and said, help me understand this. If God is sovereign, then why do I have to do anything? Well, I pointed this person to the great book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, who does a marvelous job of addressing that while salvation is a complete work of God, that God still holds man responsible for his decision. And it's incredibly helpful. It's a short, not a long, drawn-out book, but it's a short book that deals with two premises. And the two premises are the two extremes with regards to evangelism. The first extreme is the following. It is uh, asserting, go ahead and throw that up there for me, asserting man's responsibility to the exclusion of God's sovereignty. And so churches do this all the time. What they'll say is we've got to figure out a way to market this thing that makes it palatable for unbelievers. So we'll put a rock group up there, and, and they'll play the music that they hear on, uh, on the radio. That, they'll start. We'll put fog machines and lights, and we'll make it a concert experience. And, and the preacher will get up, and, and, and he won't preach things that, that will offend or, or trip up the unbeliever. Uh, we're going to make things all palatable for him. We call that seeker-driven ministry, where the seeker, the unbeliever, is, if, if you will, the customer. And our evangelism is, evangelism is going to be uh, packaged in such a way that will enable them to respond. That's not biblical evangelism. Because what you have done is you have forgotten that no man seeks after God unless God himself through his spirit allows him to. And so we have to recognize that. And we have to make sure that our evangelism isn't about performance, but it's about the precepts of Christ. So evangelism happens because of God. It's brought to fruition through God and for the glory of God. And if God is so involved, then we got to be careful that we don't then limit ourselves. Notice the second extreme is affirming God's sovereignty in a way that limits man's responsibility. So someone will say, well, if, if God chooses those who are elect, and now we're getting into predestination and all those big words, if God's doing all that, then i just got to wait and let God beam me up like Scotty did in the USS Enterprise, that he's going to do the work. And that's an extreme view as well. That's a view that doesn't hold water with regards to biblical Christianity. So how do you balance those two things? That God is completely sovereign in our salvation, and yet we are completely responsible in it. How in the world can God do something and still expect us to do something in the process? The best way I can illustrate it, and and it may be a bad illustration, I don't want you to think it's a joke or being crass in any way, is this. Who is the giver of all life? Answer me that question. God, right? Mom and dads, did you not have to do something in order to have children? Yeah, we just, if you have any questions, talk to Pastor Keith about that. He'll walk you through that. Okay? So, we live with this seeming paradox, right? God is the giver of children, but we have something to do, right? Because God's not into the business of virgin births, right? Okay, he's done it once, he's not going to do it again, right? So we have a part that God has brought us into, but when I look at my three children, I can't say to Amanda, and I look what we created, look at what we did. We're pretty good. No, we have to hold in one thing, God gave us these children. But we had a part in it. That is salvation. God does it, he allows us into the process, And he allows us into the process, not so we can say, look at what I did, but look at how great God is. 
So what is our job as to, to expand the illustration even farther? What is our job as evangelists? We're the obstetricians. We get the joy of bringing these children into the world. We help the process. We work through the God's the one that's doing all the gestation, if you will, in the child's uh, uh, beginnings. But we get the opportunity to be the hands and the, and the arms that, that bring that child into existence. What a glorious thing that God has enabled us to be a part of. I could spend hours, I could spend messages on this, but that's what we've got to hold on to. And so a biblical view holds the sovereignty of God in one hand, our responsibility in another hand, and it's going to pull us with tension back and forth, but we can never let go of either of those pillars because both of those pillars are wholly biblical. Move on to the next point. Now we get to the Scripture. We're a Bible church. We've got to talk about the Bible, right? Acts chapter 3 gives us the substance of our evangelism. I love preaching verse by verse, but when you deal with subject matters like this, it's going to be really hard to focus in on one passage of Scripture because we're looking at the totality of what the Scripture says on this subject. But within this passage, and I will go very quickly through it, and my fifth point is very short, so stick with me. We'll be done before the hayrides begin. In... Acts chapter 3, Peter and John have just healed a man who was lame since birth. And the first response that the people have is, look how great Peter and John are. They're awesome. To which Peter and John right away, Peter says, why do you keep looking at us with such astonishment as if we have the piety or power to have done this thing? Remember this. It's not in your outlines, but it's chiefly important. Evangelism is not about you, the sinner, the, save, the, the saved individual. It is about the Savior. And anytime anybody starts saying, wow, you're pretty amazing, you Mr. Evangelist, you point to Jesus. So notice how we get there. How do we get to evangelizing? Number one, it involves the substance of our evangelism begins by seeing Jesus as supremely glorious. In verse 12, Peter turns the attention from themselves right away to Jesus. And Peter and John see Jesus as supremely glorious, and that's why they evangelize. So let me help you. The more you are infatuated and enamored and blown away by the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life will correlate to what you're doing and sharing it with others. So I will tell you, if you are kind of mixed on the gospel of Jesus Christ, yeah, it worked for you, but you're not sure it works for someone else, or it's a good Sunday morning thing, I can assure you, you're probably not evangelizing. If you are filled with the utmost joy and persuasion that God has revolutionized your life and changed you and brought you from death to life, you're going to tell others about it. It's human nature. And so one of the problems we have in Christianity is we're not awed by the work that Jesus has done in our lives. Why in the world would we be awed to think that he could do it in others? But Peter and John don't see this. They say this Jesus, the one that was prophesied by the prophets, the God of our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they glorified this man, Jesus, his servant. They call him the author of life. They call him the Holy and Righteous One. 
They say it's his name alone that saves sinners from their sin. Jesus is it. He's the ball game. He's everything. He's our all and all is what they say. And if Jesus is not that, then kiss your evangelism goodbye because you'll never do it. It isn't worth the cost. But notice what they tell him. They tell him who he is. They tell him what he has done that needs to be a part of our evangelism. And they get up close and personal. This is the Jesus you killed. This is the Jesus you traded Barabbas, a murderer, for, and you handed over to be crucified, the Son of God. So evangelism can't be just Jesus is great, Jesus is great, Jesus is great. Isn't Jesus great? Great, great, great. It has to then move to what they have done to Jesus, what you have done to Jesus. Jesus is great, and what we do, we kill them. But Tim, we weren't there for the crucifixion. Listen, with every sin that we have committed, we hung Jesus on that cross. We nailed those nails into his hands and to his feet. And we need to tell people that. And that ain't going to be fun. See, it's easy to point. Yeah, Jesus is awesome. He works for me. Well, that's fine. Jesus doesn't work for me. No, here's the problem. Jesus has to work for you because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have to tell our people that are around us that they're rebellion and they're in need of, re- in, in need of repentance. You've got to show them that. That's hard. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Now, First Peter tells us, do this with gentleness and respect. Don't be a jerk about it. You know, what's that smell? You smell it? What, what's the smell? It's your soul burning in hell. That ain't going to work. Okay? I know some of you have thought about that. Okay? You can't do that. Gentleness and respect. Remembering you were once on the highway to hell. And you've got to call them to repentance. Notice what he says. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as you did your rulers. But notice, ignorance. You can't plead ignorance before God. You may be ignorant of it, but you're still in rebellion. And notice what he says. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. A person cannot come to Jesus Christ without turning from their sins. And Peter announces that. You want to be saved? Repent of your sins. How are you going to do it? God's the one that works through you. He'll see it done. Pray to that end. But notice, he doesn't say, well, you're in trouble. You've you've angered God and he's mad at you. Notice that when we turn in repentance to God, there are times, verse 20, of refreshing that may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. The good news of Jesus Christ is though we are in our sin, Because of the finished work on the cross, we can be saved. And when we are saved, times of refreshing will come. Not only in this life, but notice in verse 21, when he returns to take us to be with him again. So let me ask you this question. How, when was the last time you were honest and humble enough to show someone how glorious Jesus was? When was the last time you were honest and humble enough to show someone their rebellion and need of repentance? Do it with gentleness and respect. When was the last time you shared God's refreshing grace that comes through repentance and faith? For many of us, it's been far too long. For some of us, we don't know where to start. It starts by putting a name on your outline and praying for that individual that you will have 
the filling of the Spirit to go and be bold enough to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do we do it? You know, I've told you this has been an examination, and I'll close with this. It's been an examination of whether we're healthy as a church. And I said to the first service, and I'll say to this service as well, that I think we are not as healthy as we think with regards to evangelism as a church. And we need a strategy for moving forward. And I'm going to give you what I believe is a four-point strategy of moving forward. If Village Bible Church longs and looks to the day where we will see an ever-growing rate of evangelism and conversion through the ministries of our church, how in the world are we going to get there? We need to, number one, be missional in all aspects of our lives. For far too many of us, the gospel ends when we leave the parking lot. I've told you this before, and I'll say it again. The work that I do at 5Bs, Monday through Friday, or really all the time, is as much of a ministry as I'm doing for you right now. And you've got to know that in your own life. You can't separate the sacred from the secular. You are a Christian in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your schools, as you are here in church. Stop making a dichotomy of the two. You are doing that together. Jesus wants you to engage as his son and daughter, whether at Village Bible Church or at the office place or in the truck or, or in the construction area or in the factory or in the home that you live in. Stop separating the two. Be a Christian all the time in all places. Number two, this is for our elders. We as elders have failed at times to model it. Our elders, guys, I'm talking to you and myself, we have to help our congregation see that evangelism is the lifeblood of the church. Not only evangelism across the street, but to the uttermost parts of the world. They need to know, our congregation needs to know what it means to follow Jesus Christ in the Great Commission. To be willing to take the blows and take the hits so that our people can see what it's like to be a bright light in their workplaces, to be a bright light in their neighborhoods, in their schools, and the world. So congregation, pray that your elders will model this for you. We want to do that. Number three, it's on the elders again. Teach the biblical methods of evangelism to the congregation. We must do a better job of teaching and training you to be the best evangelist you can be. And we have failed in that. We have not done a good job of articulating what the gospel is. The past eight months have been a time where the elders have had to revisit this idea of what evangelism is, what the gospel is, and we have not spoken in one voice. We have not spoken in a solidarity, and we have failed you in that, and those days are done. We're going to teach you what the Bible says about what evangelism is. We're going to continue to teach you on what conversion is, what, uh, what the gospel is, and we're going to do so so that you are crystal clear that when you present the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the true gospel that we are called to proclaim. Finally, we're going to celebrate the moments of evangelism that you have. I had a gentleman come in the first service right down in tears. And he said, a woman that I had a couple experience uh, um, uh, times with, meaning, um, you know, very f- acquaintance, called me this weekend out of the blue and said, my husband committed suicide 
and I don't know what to do. And he said, well, I'm thinking of you, I'm praying for you, and that was it. And he said, this message was a message for me today. I gotta go back, that was an opportunity I missed. Here this unbelieving woman calls me out of the blue in a weak point of seeing that her life is not what she thought it was. An opportunity for a gospel, and we missed it. So he sat, and a couple of us prayed with him at the end of the service, prayed that God would give him boldness and clarity. We need to be praying for one another. Small groups, we need to be articulating to one another. This is a person I'm reaching out to. Pray for me this week. Man, we've got the medical conditions down, right? I mean, that's, we're praying about all that. But how much more important is it, not only for our own comfort in our medical issues, which are big, how much more is the eternal, not the temporal, souls of men and women around us? We want to pray for that. We want to train you in that. We want to tell others about your steps of courage so that they might grow in their faith so that we will reach the world with the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, what will happen if we get serious about this? Well, he took 120 in an upper room and he changed the world. What could he do with the thousand of us that call Village Bible Church our home? You think he could change the Fox Valley area? You think with our ministry partners that we could change places like uh, Uganda and, and uh, Liberia and Thailand and all the other places that we have brothers and sisters serving Christ? God wants to change the world and he wants to use us. Are we ready for the opportunity to do it? I've preached too long and I apologize about that, but this is something we have to get a grab on. If we don't, then we will die as a church. So let's pray that God will lead us to a place of life and mission in the days to come. Father God, thank you for the patience of your people, and I thank you for their diligence in hearing the word of God, and I thank you for what you have taught us. Lord, we've only scratched the surface as to what you've called us to with regards to evangelism. Remind us of how you have saved us. Remind us how you've taken us out of darkness and brought us into your wonderful light. Remind us of the tombs we lived in before we encountered the Savior and Lord of our souls. And from that, let that be the impetus that moves us to tell others about it no matter the cost. So Lord, I pray for our neighborhoods. I pray for our schools. I pray for our workplaces. I pray for our homes. That the gospel would go forth in such a way that we would see many bow the knee to Jesus. Use this church. Use this people to do that. Not so that we can say, look how great we are but we can see how glorious you are. It is because of this, Lord, we bow the knee to you and we worship and adore you because you are the Savior of sinners. And we love you for it. Now send us forth, Lord, into this world that needs to hear that gospel. Lord, we have a great opportunity today around a farm to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us be bold in that so that we may live up to what you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.